from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Elaine. Let's pray together. Father, as we continue to worship you together, please uh, open our hearts and our minds as we look at your word this morning. Please, Lord, take the words that I say, but Lord, also speak, Lord, we pray in this space, in this time we have just to be in your presence. We ask, Lord, that you'd open our hearts and minds to know you and love you more. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. You might want to keep your Bibles open at that passage as we look at it together. Um, But first of all, I've got a question for you. Do you think uh, that the church should have a regular health check? Do you think the church should, from time to time, have an MOT, kind of a spiritual MOT? Because many of us go to the health health centre, don't we, for a health check. We take our cars to the garages regularly to get them MOT'd to see if they're roadworthy. So why not have an MOT for a church? For those of you that work in public services, uh, you're used to inspections. If you're a teacher in the world of education, you know the fear that descends upon a school when you've had that phone call from Ofsted. If you work in health or social care, you'll know that the Ofsted-style inspections have hit public services as well. And if you're in business, then you'll know that you regularly review how the business is doing. So we live in a world where assessment, review, evaluation, reflective practice, checkups are all part of everyday life. So why not have a health check or an MOT for the church? One of the things that attracted me to apply for the post here at St. Stephen's was a Blackburn Diocese Vision 2026. It isn't a vision to manage decline, which is what is happening in many dioceses around the country. It's a vision to see growth. Thank you, Isaac. And it's a and strapline I'm sure you're very familiar with is healthy churches transforming communities. And that really struck me as something that I wanted to be part of, to see the church grow. But what does a healthy church look like? If we want to see spiritual growth and numerical growth, then we need to be in good health. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be having a kind of a health check, a kind of a spiritual MOT for the church. And my motivation isn't because I think there's a particular issue that I want to look at. Um, It's just because I know that in every church, there are times when you need to stop and think and reflect. In fact, what I've heard as I've been talking to people is actually a church 
that has been committed to, to mission, even though they haven't had a vicar over the last few months, can been committed to prayer, to Bible study, to meeting together, to encouraging one another. But as I've said, every church now and then needs a refresh. And I sense that work began last weekend as we sense God's spirit moving among us. And my prayer is that we might, might know more of that wind of God's spirit among us. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4 and thinking about church matters. Not the church building, although that's important. We're talking about the people who make up the church. Thank you, Isaac. So we're going to begin with, uh, I've got three points for you. Sorry they don't all begin with C, but um, I tried and didn't make it quite. So first of all, calling matters. And secondly, character matters and unity matters. And let's begin by thinking about how, how our calling matters in verse 1. I wonder how you came to faith in Jesus. For some people, it's a dramatic, a life-changing moment when they meet Jesus. For others, it's more of a growing realisation that Jesus is the most important person in their life. And I'm looking forward to hearing your stories. I've heard some of them already, uh, how Jesus calls each one of us to follow him. A call that summons us to believe that Jesus is the risen Lord and King and to give our complete and undivided allegiance to him for the rest of our lives. That's why Paul says in verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I think he wants us to know that it's worth following Christ. That even if it ends up being imprisoned for our faith or even dying for our faith, it's worth it. Paul is saying, look where I am. I'm in chains I'm deprived of my liberty. Every day is much the same. I'm hungry. I'm lonely. I've been falsely accused. I don't know how it'll all end. But do you know what? It's worth it. This is radical Christianity. And our calling is from Christ. And it can be costly to follow Christ. We may not end up in prison or die for our faith, but it will be costly. It will involve suffering. And writing from prison uh, means that... um, that what Paul writes is dangerous. It's risky being a Christian. It's not just an easy, comfortable life, a soft option. See, Paul is trying to shake us up. He's not writing from a beach in Turkey. He's writing from a prison cell. Following Christ will involve sacrifice, but our calling matters. And so Paul urges us in verse 1, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Thank you, Isaac. Do you remember the politician, uh, Jonathan Aitken? He was a member of the Conservative Party, an MP and a member of Cabinet. But his career ended when he was charged with perjury at the Old Bailey and sentenced to 18 months in jail. But wonderfully, he, he came to know Jesus, and he's got a powerful story to tell. But his unfortunate uh, fall from grace explains something of what Paul is telling us here about living a life worthy of the calling we've received. Because we expect someone in high office, like an MP or a member of the cabinet, that we expect that they will not lie. We expect that their behaviour will reflect the position they have in government. And when Jonathan Aitken was finally convicted and all his lies were unravelled, the nation was in shock. He was proved to be unworthy of his calling to be a public servant. He was living unworthily of his office. 
And though he faced condemnation by the public, he found forgiveness and new life in Christ. And the Apostle Paul, who's writing these verses, urges us to live a life worthy of our calling. Our calling is to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian. And if you want to know what that means, thank you, Isaac, um, here's a quick summary of what um, chapter 1 tells us, of what it's all about. It's, to be a Christian is to know that God chose you before the foundation of the world to be holy and to be blameless in his sight. To know that you're adopted into his family. To know that you've been forgiven of your sins. It's to receive the Holy Spirit in your life as a down payment of all that God has in store for you. And to share this wonderful grace with others. Read chapter 1 when you get home if you want to just refresh yourselves of all that God has done for us. But the point here is that we realise what a privilege it is to be a Christian. And that will shape our lives. And when we grasp all that God has blessed us, then we will live differently. But it is possible, it is possible isn't it, to lose sight of who, who God has called us to be, especially if we've been Christians for many years. Let's remember what it means to follow Jesus and the high calling that we have. Let's let it shape our daily lives, that we might live lives worthy of our calling as Christians. And of course, living for Christ isn't just about the truth in our heads. It will be shown in the way we interact with others, which takes us to our next slide. And our next point, that character matters. Calling matters, but character also matters in verse 2. Many churches around the country are creating mission action plans. They're looking at their communities and thinking, how can we best reach our communities with good news of Jesus? And they're also looking at their own church and thinking, how can we change to become more welcoming with a greater emphasis on discipleship? And so they are creating mission action plans to help the church grow. Some people don't like this. They, they don't like the idea of kind of business planning coming into the church. And you may have your own thoughts about that. But I think it's important that, that as a church, we're clear about who we're called to be and what we're called to, to, to do. And I know that you have a mission action plan called Our Ways and our hopes. I won't ask you what it says, but I believe this is what it says. To love God with all that we are, compassionately serving others, and spreading the wonderful news of the hope we have in Jesus. And what I like about this statement that you have is that it starts with the love of God, or perhaps God's love for us. And it identifies compassionate service and proclamation as a way to share the gospel, both with our lives and with our words. It doesn't say anything about structures, lines of accountability, methodology, as important as they are. The important thing is, Paul says, you make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, in verse 4. So Paul tells us what we should be aiming to do and then tells us how we do it. And we can see in this passage that what matters here to Paul are the moral qualities, the virtues that we show as Christians. Thank you, Isaac. And then he, he, he uh, one back, I think. Thank you. And uh, he outlines four particular um, characteristics that we should have and are symptomatic of a healthy church. Let's read verse 2. He says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
Let's look at each of these in turn. First of all, humility. Humility isn't valued by everyone. In some cultures, it's seen to be a sign of weakness. In fact, it was Jesus who actually shows us the dignity of humility. We see it as Jesus picks up a towel and washes his disciples' feet. Paul describes it in Philippians. And listen to the way the message translates those words. It says, Think of yourselves the way that Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that, of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took the status of a slave, becoming human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Humility recognizes the worth and the value of others. And Christ was willing to put aside his own status and advantages to become a human being. The humble mind of Christ enabled him to empty himself and become a servant. It's true, isn't it? The people that we instinctively respect are those that respect us. We dislike those who look down upon us and treat us badly. And so we are called to respect others by recognizing their worth in God's eyes. And by doing so, we promote harmony among God's people. But in this verse, we see that also linked with humility is gentleness. I've not had the opportunity to meet the now retired Bishop of Lancaster, although I guess many of you do know him, uh, Bishop Jeff. But um, as he reflected on his, his ministry, Bishop Jeff wrote in the Diocese magazine of how two bishops had an influence on him as a young curate. Both of them encouraged him um, to be gentle in his ministry. If you can have the next slide, please. And he wrote these words. He said, both these men taught me that gentleness is not weakness, but restrained strength. And they pointed me to the gentleness and the strength of Christ. The gentleness of the strong is strength under control. It's a person who can speak out without putting others down. Because they're slow to assert their own rights and quick to identify the needs of others. You see, humility and gentleness form a natural couple. And they were found in perfect balance in Jesus, who described himself as gentle and humble in heart. The next two virtues we see in this verse are patience and bearing with one another in love. And sometimes as Christians, we can be so desperate to see growth in each other's lives that at times we can be impatient and lacking in forbearance with one another. We can be so anxious to see fruit in each other's lives that at times we resort to subtle and avert forms of pressure to get people to conform to a certain set of behaviours or beliefs. And our well-intentioned acts sometimes can be damaging. But here, Paul reminds us to be patient and forbearing with one another. I was interested, as I was reading this, um, the Hindu um, world prayer guide, the story of Puja on day four, which I'll read to you. 
She says, I encountered Christ, she came from a Hindu background, became a believer in Jesus, and this is what she says. I encountered Christ's love for me through a teacher who kindly offered to privately tutor me because I had fallen behind in my studies. One day she invited me over to her house and introduced me to a children's Bible. Over time, my tutor shared the love of Jesus with me, taught me how to pray to him and how to trust that he hears and answers our prayers. As I began to pray to Jesus, I was filled with faith because again and again, he faithfully answered my prayers. Through this process, I moved from believing that Jesus was one of many gods to believing that Jesus is the only way to gain a restored relationship with the almighty God. Do you notice how she talks about that being a process? And it's important that we, that we are patient and forbearing with those, especially when people come from a culture outside of, the, of our church culture or come from another faith group. We're sometimes in too much of a hurry and we need to let God do his work. Finally, we see that unity matters in verses 3 to 6. Um, if you look at verse 3, you see that the word one is repeated seven times. Paul says there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father. So we can assume that as Paul writes, what he's saying to us is that Christian unity arises from the unity that's within the Godhead. And the thing that strikes me about these verses is the confidence in which Paul puts these truths across. Paul wants us to understand something important about God's oneness. Of course, three of the words allude to the Trinity. There is one Spirit, one Lord, one Father. He's, of course, referring to the three persons of the Godhead, of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the other four remaining ones are related to our Christian experience. Let's look at them. First of all, there is one body in verse 4. The one body, of course, is the church, the body of Christ. But notice how Paul links the body with the one spirit. Unless there is breath in the body, the body is dead. There can be no living church without the Holy Spirit in the midst of that body. Indeed, none of this is possible without the work of the Spirit. Next, there is one hope, one faith, one baptism. And of course, they're all linked as well. It's in Jesus whom we believed. It's in Jesus who, in whom we've been baptized. And it's, in, it's Jesus' coming again that we wait for with expectant hope. It's interesting, isn't it? When Paul talks about himself, um, he does it humbly. But he's bold when he talks about the truths about God. And it's important that we don't fall into the trap of kind of apologizing for what we believe or being hesitant about talking about the truths about God. We may present ourselves humbly, but we present the truths of God with confidence and with boldness. Finally, and in conclusion, as I explored the possibility of coming to serve here at St. Stephen's Parish, I was struck by how the number one was important in this parish. You know, when you apply for a job, a, a, a job or a ministry like this, um, all prospective candidates get sent something called um, a parish profile, which talks about the parish and the church. And in the parish profile, it talked about how 
this area, this parish, has just one church, of course, St. Stephen's. How there's one mosque. How there's one Sikh Gurdwara. How there's one large Hindu temple and one smaller one. How there's one Buddhist centre. How there's one Church of England school. And how there's one pub, which I visited this week with a few of the guys. And yet, it is the most religiously diverse parish in the diocese. That's interesting, isn't it, how a parish can be known for its oneness and also for its diversity. And I think that's a picture for us of our church life together. We should be known for our oneness, for our unity, but also for our diversity. We should be known for our one belief in the one God and Father who's made us into one family, people of different age, ages, cultures and backgrounds. We should be known for our belief in the one Lord Jesus Christ, who's given us one faith, one hope and one baptism to follow. And we should be known for our belief in the one Holy Spirit, who gives life to the body, the church. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But we should also be known for our diversity. One of the things that Philip and Jackie Dorling said to me last weekend, as they looked at, uh, we were in the dining room and they were looking around, looking at people interacting with each other, chatting, laughing. And they said to me, you know what? You're very lucky to have this church. I think they're a bit envious, really, because they've got seven churches to look after. Um, they said, you know, St. Stephen's is a proper church family. It's a church made up of young and old, people from different cultures and faith backgrounds, people who work, people who don't work, um, people who've got disabilities and people who don't have disabilities, families, single people, people strong in their faith, people who are just beginning to explore their faith. Now, they didn't mean that, that you're perfect, because you know you're not. But be encouraged by what they said. Because as people look on, they say, you know, that's what a church family should be like. So that's the end of our first um, part of our health check. We can see um, from these verses in Ephesians that what matters in the church, well, our calling matters. We need to know that we're called to live a life worthy of our calling, that our character matters, how we behave with each other, how we behave at work, in our families, in our communities. That matters too because it speaks of Christ. And that unity matters as well. But how can we live like this? We can only live like this by daily dependence on God's spirit to help us to live in the way that he calls us to live. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you, Lord, that it's so practical. Thank you, Lord, that you show us how you call us to live, but you don't expect us to do it in our own strength, that you have given us the Holy Spirit to enable us to live for your glory. So please, Lord, help us this week in our relationships with our, within the church family, with our relationships at home, at work, in our streets, wherever we spend our time this week, that we might show your character, that we might point people to Jesus. We ask this for the glory of your name. Amen.